You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. Today my guest is someone who I find very interesting, Mr. Michael Young, the co-founder of Undone Watches uh, in Hong Kong. This is um, still a relatively new brand, so much energy, so many uh, new pieces uh, that they've come out with, um, revisions of classics, affordable prices. Um, anyways, we'll talk a lot about that. Michael, welcome. Hi, hi, Ariel. Long time no see. Yeah, we... Um, we had an, a blog to watch event together on your terrace in Hong Kong a few years ago. Uh, we invited a bunch of people out, um, and that was that was such a special day for me. Um, especially since you know Hong Kong is a city I I so uh, enjoyed being, and I say enjoyed because I haven't been there in a long time. But so many trips there. Um, it, do you, you, what, what what do you remember about that night? Right. I mean, that was a, a kind of an international event. We had guys flying over in Asia. We had a Winner of our watch, I guess, uh, the, the the undone experience. Oh which, yeah, there was the giveaway. There was the giveaway yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah that, from Germany. Yeah. yeah, and and we had beer. We had a lot of good fun there. Yeah. So yeah. So we had a we had a giveaway where somebody would travel to Hong Kong um, and they would design a watch with undone because one of the things you started out with was basically allowing people to make truly custom watches for prices that were really at the time unheard of, or at least not, you know, widely accessible. Um, tell me a little bit about why you wanted to start a business allowing people at affordable rates to create, you know, customized watches with different dials and colors and stuff like that. Right. Actually, uh, you know, it was uh, Undone Watches started because, you know, I was actually helping some high-end companies to do a lot of customization on, on watches, you know, especially Rolexes. You know, and one day, actually, I was talking to my friend over over a drink, and uh, I was telling him, "Oh, I'm doing all these high-end custom watches." And he said, "You know, Michael, uh, we can actually do that. I mean, you've got all the expertise. We can put that on the internet and let that be accessible to everyone in the world." And actually, and then was started. You know, then that was back in 2014, and uh, okay. we actually used the internet to actually allow users to play around with their custom designs. And that's kind of the breakthrough of our business model. You had like this software, it was a custom builder, and correct me if I'm wrong, part of your notion was that this could be scalable to stuff other than just watches, but you would use it, you would use watches as sort of a, a case, a, a proving ground, sort of a scenario, um, a case study to sort of show how it can work. Correct. You know, I mean, Watches is good because uh, it's relatively high value and uh, it can be easily shipped to anywhere in the world. You know, if I was doing a custom guitar, then it would be very difficult to ship uh, over, over the, the post office. Watches from a logistical standpoint, and again, this is, I think, just hyper relevant because of the, sort of the context and history of Hong Kong, but from something that you manufacture and you sell in the margins, watches have always been very exciting because they're small. Uh, there's no like regulations that need to pass. You know, a car needs to pass all these regulations. You know, watches, it, it's, there's literally no, right. not that I know of, you know, maybe some yeah. like origin of parts regulations. But other than that, it doesn't even need to work. 
right? No, no. Um, and, and, and they're so lightweight, you can ship them all over the world. So if you, if you come from a manufacturing and logistics culture, watches are like the perfect thing to like make and sell, right? Yeah, actually, it's, it's kind of the lightest thing you can kind of send anyway. And, and being in Hong Kong, you know, we, we were the, the biggest manufacturing hubs for watches in the world before, you know, China, you know, take on the, the real manufacturing side. So we have a lot of expertise uh, in the Hong Kong city uh, on, on watches. So it's kind of the perfect place because we are so close to all the manufacturing uh, back in Shenzhen, back in different provinces of China. And uh, we have access to international markets. Uh, it's a duty-free port in Hong Kong. So whenever we get you know, materials sent to Hong Kong, there's actually no import duties at all. So it's good yeah. with all the returns, you know, all the shipping logistics. Actually, shipping from Hong Kong to the States is not, it doesn't take much longer than your, you know, local U.S. courier. No, no, I buy, I get things from, from Hong Kong like two days, one day sometimes. It's incredible. Yeah. So, I mean, now with the, you know, the, the logistics from DHL, FedEx and all those, it, it really, we just seem like a, another state of U.S., you know, logistically. Now, I have to ask. In this day and age, there's been so much media around Hong Kong. And the one thing that I fear is that the Hong Kong that I love, that produced, you know, wonderful people like yourself that I get along with so well, and we have so yeah. much in common, we don't know what the future is going to be like. What is, in your opinion, the future of Hong Kong as a place, as it relates to being important for watches? Because, you know, if you haven't been to Hong Kong, you don't realize that, like, Hong Kong is like wristwatch Disneyland. It is. I, I mean, literally, I'm pretty sure there are more Rolex shops or shops that sells Rolex than in Switzerland. I mean, even if you go to Geneva, you don't see many Rolex shops. But literally no. in one street in Hong Kong, you, you literally see, you know, ten Like ten. Tens. Like not even a joke. <laughs> yeah, it's not a joke. I mean, uh, ten, 10 official stores. And then other yeah. gray market stores, there will be like a 50, 100, I don't know. There's actually, it's easier to buy a Rolex in the district I am in now than to buy a, a, a spy bread, literally. Wow, it is. I mean, it's crazy out here. You should, you should, you should say it's 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 easier to buy a Rolex at a price. Maybe not the retail price, but at a price. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you will never buy a Daytona at this price. <laughs> okay, so what? Let, let me let, let me talk about that because when I first started going to Hong Kong and noticing all these amazing watches. At the time, they had a lot of good deals. I mean, you could get an amazing watch at a price in Hong Kong, probably better than anywhere else in the world. But a couple of years ago, that started to change, and finding deals was harder to do. I have my own theories on why this is, but what, what in your opinion, happened to make it so that Hong Kong went from a place that, to get a great deal to prices that, in some instances, were quite high? Um, actually, what happens is, uh, I think it, the internet certainly changed the landscape. I mean, prices are very transparent. You know, you can go on a site and, and different trading platforms to actually find out the current market uh, value of any watches. And Hong Kong being the hub of all the watch trading in, in Asia, basically, uh, you know, we, it's just like stock prices. How can you get stock? cheaper than market rates that that's it that's what currently the market is it's so liquid you know if you name a model number on rolex literally it's like stock prices 
it goes up and down every day. So, so these watches are really that easy to move at above retail prices? It is. It is. Basically, okay. there is kind of like, I wouldn't say underground list price, but there is another set of price that between dealers, we, we, there is a daily um, small fluctuation in prices. Uh, of course, that depends on supply and demand. No, especially with the COVID times, uh, when, you know, sometimes when, when Europe is in, in lockdown, so it's very difficult to get watches out of Europe, then, you know, prices go up. Okay, so, but here's the last thing I have to say on that. Yeah. It seems to me that they've done a total shift because there's still plenty of watches that they cannot sell unless they sell them at a discount or, or under retail price because these are, you know, older, no longer made watches. Yeah. I do understand that there are certain watches that are able to go for above retail price. But that represents, you know, watches from a very small number of brands, like five or six brands. Everything yeah. else can't move at that higher amount. And I noticed that they were, they were like pricing hopefully. So rather than price to move, mm -hmm. they were like price to sit. Yeah. And I found that very, very interesting because it didn't seem to go with a fast-paced sort of uh, uh, nature of the culture. Right. So basically, I think uh, watches... Certain brands, you know, your five or six brands became a commodity. It, it no longer is a watch anymore. You know, people put their money as an investment on those watches. So it's, it went, you know, from a, a collector's point of view, it became a, 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 an investment. You know, certain models only go up. They kind of never go down. So... What's, what's a better investment than that? You know, you can wear a watch. After three years, you will make money out of it. I mean, there is no hobby in the world that, that really works that way. Is this sustainable? It, you know, that's, that's, I, I don't disagree with you. There are a lot of watches that that does seem to be the case. But right. is, that, is that sustainable? Uh, as long as people view a mechanical watch as an investment, and I think it's been like this for the last 30, 20, 30 years. I mean, is that sustainable unless the whole shift in culture moves away from watches? I mean, in the short term, I think it will not be. But in the next generation, I fear there may be changes because our biggest enemy is actually the younger generation not having any watch on the hand. You know, it's, you know, for example, my kid, I was about to give uh, one of my uh, old Rolex to him as his first mm -hmm. Rolex. He was not interested. So how'd that make you feel? I mean, you know, I said, if I was a kid, I was giving a Rolex, you know, I would just jump on it. I would be so happy with it. But my kid basically had, had no interest in the watch. <laughs> so I Interesting. think that, that maybe, maybe they will later. No, he's already like 17. So I think it's, it's the shift oh, wow. in, in the culture. I mean, generally, when, you know, the younger generation no longer sees as... So uh, what, what is, for him, mm -hmm. what is the replacement of the watch? What gives him that sort of confidence boost, self-esteem, wearing his, you know, his attitude, his style, personality on his body? What's his... What's his manifestation right, I think of that? It's a, it's a kind of a shift with any technology. It's I would say it's kind of like a circle that, you know, like mobile phones, you know, it, it starts from a big size mobile phone, becomes a small size mo mobile phone, and then it becomes big again when there's a new generation coming up. 
Also with watches, we started off with pocket watches, right? And then we miniaturized them and put them on our wrists and we call them wrist watches, okay? Now it's just a generation moving from wrist watches to pocket watches again, which we all have in our pocket, which is our phones. They literally yeah, yeah. read off the phone for time. So the dependency on looking on the wrist is, is no longer there. You know, for, for us generations, you know, Ariel, we, we always kind of need a watch on our wrist. You know, we, we feel more secure having the time on our wrist. But the younger generation, they are trained to look at time on the phones. But here's where I'm hopeful. I, mm -hmm. I, I don't disagree with you. Here's where yeah. I'm hopeful. I think that smartwatches will become increasingly popular, yeah. but there will also be smartwatch fatigue. People will get annoyed at least some percentage of the time from having notifications, telling you that you haven't you know, like walked enough. Like People don't want that at dinner. Right. And so I think that like what I call it the 10% time, like 90% yeah. of people's wrist wearing time will go to smartwatches or whatever you want to call them. But 10% when they're like out to dinner at a social event or just wanting to hang out or wanting to go hiking and just don't want to see that stuff or whatever it is, um, they'll, 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 be, they'll be used to wearing something on their wrist. It'll actually be like you and me, or if we leave the house, you know what I mean? Like we're not wearing a watch. We feel naked. We're like, oh my God, I, I got to go get my exactly. watch. I, I think that that feeling will become more popular as people wear uh, smartwatches more often. And right. so there's like, like I said, there's that 10% space. Now that that does necessitate a smaller watch industry. Like, I don't know, about 10 years ago, I said that this watch industry needed to shrink by about 50%, yeah. which it's doing. You yeah. know, uh, uh, That doesn't mean there isn't room for new brands like Undone, but mm. a lot of these companies just have literally no reason to exist anymore. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, literally, if you have a, a design with a white face and no design, I think there isn't a place in the watch industry for them anymore. If it's not an interesting piece, I think those companies will be gone. You know, yeah, I mean, there or is the, the, the Popeye the, one. Yeah, you know that one. I'm looking right here, the undone Popeye seaweed, where yeah. you've done your sort of take on the uh, character as hands on on the dial, and right. you know, you got Popeye. It's got this sort of you know green color tone. I don't know if that's just a gold tone or a bronze case, but there's so much personality in it. Like this watch is, uh, it's a, it's it's a communication statement. It's the same thing as wearing a T-shirt that has your favorite favorite musical group on it, or something like that. Right. It, it's it it's the same thing. People can connect to it. What is that? That's fun. Let's talk about it. Oh, I like Popeye. If you don't like Popeye, you know that's just cute. It's kind of retro. It's just it's so flirtatious on a social level that you know a blank white T-shirt doesn't do and never will do. Right. I like your description of flirtatious. I mean, that's exactly where Undone is positioned. I mean, we are not an expensive watch. You know, how how can we sell a watch to people? You know, I, I, I always have this story is I have a, a customer who actually uh, owns a listed company. So when he listed his company on the stock exchange, he actually took off an expensive AP Royal Old Chronograph and wore an Undone on the event. And I said, what the hell? Why, why did you take it off? You know, you have a nice AP watch. He said, I wore the Undone not because of an Undone, because we, he has a customized Undone, which has a photo of her, his daughter on the back of the case. So he right. said he wanted to bring his daughter together on the important event on listing the company. And I think that that is where we are. I mean, we are kind of just 
an enabler to design your watch, your own watch. So, you know, Popeye is a different take on it. You know, it's your story. It's a story you want to tell people. Uh, it's, it's a very good icebreaker in conversations. And, and you've done such a great job at it. And I think that it's, again, I, I, I hate to be sort of controversial about it, but your region is not known for so much creativity. I think you really shocked the world when this, you know, watchman from Hong Kong mm -hmm. started being more creative than the companies that people tend to attribute with being creative, like the European companies. Yep. And I saw this incredible shift where the East is now the source of creativity, uh, of course, from Japanese brands as well. But Japan and China primarily are creating originality, art in the wristwatch space where the West, especially Europe, has been static, to say the least, right? Yeah, I think what happened was, uh, you know, the early days, Asia is basically just a manufacturing hub. And when people think when they can manufacture a watch and then to market a watch, basically they are in two different industries. You know, if you just put a logo on a watch design, it's, it's not a brand. So if you want to do a brand, you have to actually get rid of manufacturing. I mean, if you're into manufacturing, you have different mentalities uh, when, you, you, when you design a watch. You want, you want to do the most cost savings on the design. So that actually takes away um, the, the interesting part of a watch. But I actually come from a background of being a watch collector. You know, it, it, it's for me, it's, it's just like very natural. You know, I just want to design my next watch. And that's how I always want to take the design aspects of it. I don't really love now, Yeah, please. As, as, as a creative person, mm -hmm. um, you have found yourself in a very fortunate position where this infrastructure has been created around you to literally build your ideas. Yes. You now get to be that creative person that doesn't just have to imagine it. There's a structure to build it. And yeah. you get to look at it and be like, oh, that worked out really well, or I'll do this next time. Um, you know, some people would call that, you know, living the dream of like a mad scientist, where you don't have to ask anyone permission before you do some crazy experiments. Right. And you've had, you know, you've had, you've had experience to do it so many times over now. Are you sort of living the dream as a watch lover or what, what's sort of the next step for you? I mean, what else can you ask for? You know, being a watch collector, not only having yourself being able to design watches that you like, you have a whole team, you have all the equipment. You know, I have a, a 3D artist that does the 3D rendering. I have a watch designer that does the 2D designs for me. Uh, we have prototypers that, you know, prints out the cases for me to check the dimensions and everything. What else can you ask for? You know, I mean, this is the ultimate uh, watch collector's dream, you know, technically. I mean, we, do, we don't have the limitations of any brand. You know, even if you, I was actually employed as a CEO of a Swiss brand, then you have a lot of manufacturing uh, handicaps. You know, I was, you know, told by one of my friends in, in Switzerland, he was actually redesigning a swan neck in the movement. He said, it took right. me like nine months to get a sample and then another 18 <laughs> months to, to get it done. And there was just one component in, in, in the movement. You know, imagine doing the whole watch. Yeah, and it doesn't and it doesn't need to be that way. Now, one of the things that I think when a Swiss brand looks at your business model, right. the first thing they're going to ask themselves is like, okay, okay, I get it. I get the designs. I get the appeal. Um, but I don't understand your price points because your price points 
tend to hover between about three and I'll yeah. say three hundred dollars maybe is an average. It goes up to you know maybe close to six hundred. Yeah. But that seems to be about an average. Right. And they try to do the calculation, you know, trying to establish margins margins and things like that. Right. And they're like, wow, these guys have to sell a lot of watches direct because you have a direct to consumer sales model. You don't sell through, you know, right. third party retailers and stores and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's a that's a scary proposition. We could never move that many watches because you know when you when you sell a watch for a few, few thousand bucks. If you make a thousand dollars per product, that's way more than most companies make. Right. Um, you know, for every item that they sell, mm-hmm. you know, you if your watch costs under a thousand dollars retail, mm-hmm. you have to build on all these other costs: manufacturing, marketing, design, infrastructure, blah blah blah, before there's any profit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what would you say to them uh, in sort of the defense of the model of doing it your way at your price points? Because I think that what I love so much about Undone is that you seem to charge what what you what you should charge for these types of watches versus like what you'd love to charge. Right. And it democratizes the space in the way that I think is absolutely necessary, especially to get that younger demographic because younger people these days, they don't want to pay any more than they need to. Right. So basically we, we compress our costs in, in several ways. I mean, the, the most obvious one is we're doing direct to consumer. So we're, we're selling it directly on the internet and uh, just consumers that, you know, kind of cuts out the retailer in between. And normally they yeah. take a margin from 30 to 50%. So already that's like half price. The second, yep. the second side is on the manufacturing side. Because we do our own designs, uh, we only outsource certain components uh, to manufacturers. So the watch case, we have it made just at the watch case factory. So we also compress those margins because we do our in-house designs. We do our in-house assembly and QA testings, QC testings. So these are all contained with our uh, ecosystem. So basically, technically, no one can really get any any cheaper, you know, with the same quality. So we have the, the, the most integrated uh, uh, business on the watch side. Uh, Practically right. in the world, you know, we design everything in house. We have our own tech team that does the internet. Uh, we have our own assembly, QC, marketing. We do our Facebook ads. We used to outsource our, our Facebook ads and IG ads uh, to digital companies. Now we have in house specialists doing all these things. So luckily, because we're in Hong Kong, I mean the the the, the salary range is it's quite acceptable. Um, so, you know, I mean, literally, if I have to set up uh, a, a company in, in the States to do the same thing, you know, I would imagine that my cost would go up several votes. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's very efficient to do business in Hong Kong. Yeah. You know, you guys have to deal with full 1K and then you're setting up a business is, is quite expensive because of all, all the rules and regulations on, on human resources. Let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt. There's been other people in the space who say, you know, if Undone made watches for us like they make for them, we could, you know, move a lot more models for them. Yeah. What do you say to all the people that want to joint venture with you, partner with you, whatever? Because I'm sure by now you've had more than a few offers. Right. I mean, I am not literally interested on doing OEM watches. You know, I don't want to do you know masses. I mean, I'm I'm not really in the manufacturing business. I mean, I can introduce factories for you that can do your watches. 
But, you know, we do partner with, with people, you know, there are corporates that want to make small batches. We can custom design the watch dials for them using our existing cases. You know, we, we can do those, you know, corporate kind of deals. Uh, but, you know, for manufacturing, uh, it's a totally different thing. You know, uh, I mean, you have to manage your factory to do it. So you're, so you're, you could do it, but it's just not interesting for you because it's not a, cha- it's, it's challenging. It's a pain in the ass. Like you could make money, but it sounds like it, it's not worth the headaches. It, it's not worth it. You know, I've been in the manufacturing business uh, for like 10 years. You know, it, it, it's just a pain. It's very difficult. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of costs to actually run a factory. I mean, you, you yeah. think you will make money, but you end up not doing it. I mean, the margins are very slim. Yeah, clients really want everything for nothing. And then they take forever to pay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's go back in time a little bit because you, you know, we've had a lot of conversations before about how you got into watches and, you know, tinkering with watches as a kid and all that cool stuff. Yep. But from a business perspective, a lot of your experience is restoring uh, vintage watches, especially Rolexes and bracelets and things like that. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about what what you did as a vintage watch restorer and, and some of the things that you were especially well known for. And st- and do you still do it? Yeah, I still do it. I mean, it's a good business. I mean, it, it's a good business on its own. So basically, I started out collecting a lot of old watches, you know, especially old Rolexes. Uh, and a lot of these are not working. And, uh, and usually the bracelets on them are very loose. So, you know, I was just tinkering with all these uh, bracelets. And what to do with it? I mean, you don't want to throw away the original bracelet and buy a new one. So I, I found a way to actually uh, restore them or, or remake them to make it uh, at least more useful, at least. And, and now we are almost making them like you know, almost like brand new. So it, it, it really came from my own need. And actually, when I started, I actually posted a thread on, on one of the watch blogs. Uh, you know, offering this service to other people. And, and you know, that all started from this thread, you know, and some people just send it to the band all over from the other side of the world to, to me, to restore it. So it's really a word of mouth business, you know. But, you know, there is high demand uh, for, you know, restoring old bracelets, uh, you know, fixing different parts. And I then moved on to restore other parts of the watch beyond the watch band. Uh, you know, I started to uh, remake some, you know, watch hands, which is no longer available. Uh, I started to work on watch dials because a lot of the dials was damaged when, when, when the watch was serviced. Uh, they scratch, you know, I, I actually restore them because I'm also a modeler. I, I you know, I play with I, I was so happy you just said that. Oh, my yeah. God. I was literally about to say you're a modeler. Yeah. So basically, uh, I was, you know, fiddling with paints and stuff. You know, now I have a way to kind of like blend in the scratches, uh, you know, to match the colors of, of, of paint defects. Uh, it's, it's like, you know, I, I work on every part of the wash now. You know, everything. Okay, I, I have to, I got to explain some stuff because, you know, not everyone knows what a modeler is. Like, this is a weird thing to most people, right? Yeah. Please. Okay, so, <laughs> and, and again, I have to talk about this because I, oddly enough, look, I grew up with uh, uh, going to Japanese toy stores and you probably grew up with a lot of Japanese toys around you and <laughs> yeah. you know, like Tamiya and all this stuff. There was all these things you could buy that you could paint. 
uh, figurines, vehicles, all kinds of stuff like that. And there was a certain set of like, we'll call it toy enthusiasts that like to build these things, carefully paint them. And this was this was real craftsmanship. It was hard to do it technically. If you wanted to make it look lifelike, you'd have to learn all these techniques and blends and clays and weird stuff. I had, I was never as good as you, but I had the airbrush, I had the paints, I I, I knew how to do a wash. I had like a, a little like a, a whisker to paint really small lines and stuff like that, like in, in the Gundams and stuff like that. Yeah. So this is a skill that I never thought would ever like go to watchmaking, but you take these things that are broken, ne- you can never get original parts, and in your mind, you're thinking, using what I know, how could I make something that looks as close to the original as possible? Exactly. I mean, you know, weathering is one technique when you do modeling. You know, you, you weather, yeah. weather your tanks, you know, you want to make yeah. them look vintage. <laughs> and exactly, I'm using that technique on the old Rolexes. You know, when, when, when people want to have a, a patinaed watch, you know, when you actually repaint the luminous, it will look like brand new. And people want them to look like it's like 60-year-old uh, watch style. And that's the patina uh, effect that, you know, I applied on, on watch styles. Now, let's sort of go back to sort of this notion of a vintage. A lot of your watches are various types of amalgamations of, of classic designs and stuff like that. Are we basically seeing like what you love and just trying to put it in different pieces? Like these are all these elements that you used to appreciate a lot when you were working on these vintage ones. And now like, you know, they're fun, you know, they work. You're mm-hmm. basically just saying like, you're trying to get a new generation of people to appreciate all the stuff that you saw. Right. So basically in vintage world, I mean, they were mostly more designed for a function. I mean, I appreciate very simple designs when, when function, uh, takes over aesthetics. I mean, like like in a handgun, it, it looks really cool as a handgun, but you never really think the handgun designer wanted it to look great. I mean, it's a very functional piece. And same for watches. Originally, everything was designed around the functionality of a watch. Why the chrono pushes are look, looking that way. I mean, it wasn't really designed for aesthetics. And those simple lines are the things I think it got, got lost in translation in modern times. You know, a lot of the watches are overly designed and I like simple stuff. You know, I don't want to design a watch case which looks cool, but technically useless. I mean, the design, you don't need so much angles. You don't need so much overhangs and stuff. So I want to go back and appreciate the very basic lines. And, and I think the, the watches of the, the 50s, 60s, and 70s have the best clean lines. And I want to re- reintroduce them to the market. I think we don't have enough of these watches, you know, when I started. I think now the trend is coming back. So, uh, you know. Well, I mean. Yeah. Culture is starting to identify what a good watch design is. I mean, look, there was a long period of time where the majority of mainstream watches that you could buy, like a department store setting or whatever, were just bad designs. Like once in a while, a good design would get in there, but like most of them were bad designs. And I remember going to Hong Kong Watch and Clock Fair a number of times and seeing it firsthand and being like, what the hell is going on here? And you can you can sort of like peel back the layers of psychology and see where these designs came from and recognize that it's just layers of incompetence and stuff like that. Yeah. But 
at the end of the day, you didn't have a lot of great designs unless you were looking at enthusiast watches. Now, it things are changing a little bit. And like you said, things are being scaled back because you had several, you had like 20 or 30 years of like culture not knowing what a good watch even looked like. Exactly. That's what I, that's, you, you've really hit the nail. So basically, uh, I think people now are more conscious what a, a nice watch is. You know, even watch brands, I was just reading a magazine, Breitling is bringing out a new chronograph, no, a new vintage, basically. So that's very similar to our Pili watch. You know, we, we introduced that like five, six years ago. Now Breitling's actually doing that same design again. So I think yeah. it's not just myself. I think the market is, is now more conscious of what a, a nice, clean design is. So I think that's what, why the comeback. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blogged Watch Store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch-collecting hobby with high-quality original products at the Blogged Watch Store. Right now, the Blogged Watch Store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blogged Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow-in-the-dark face. The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now, and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. And, and I think that makes sense. Now, as a Hong Kong company, you really, really are international. Um, how challenging is it to sort of get a gauge on international taste? Because, you know, you know what you like. Mm -hmm. You probably have a decent idea of what other people in your city likes. Right. Maybe you know what people like that speak your language or come from your culture. And then you, as you branch out, you have less of a sense of knowing what people like. How do you keep up to date on, on, on what's going on or how you decide what to build and what not to build? Okay, that's a great question. Uh, the honest answer is I don't look at the market. Uh, I basically follow what I like. So, but a lot of times it seems that when we introduce the, the watch, it seems like it's, it's the most trendy color, like green dials. I didn't actually introduce a green dial because the market is going that direction. You know, I said, oh, green dial looks nice on a bronze case or a gold case. So that's why I designed it. So a lot of times... It I, does look nice. Yeah. Actually, I didn't actually plan because that was the market trend. Uh, I, I go really... I wouldn't say I go against the trend, but I have my own direction on, on well, watch okay. the Yeah. I, here's the way I explain it. Yeah. And and this is the thing. This is why it looks trendy to people. It's not it's, it's not a planned trend. You look at watch stuff. You're like looking at watch blogs and you're on Instagram. Like you see stuff. Once you start seeing a lot of, of designs, you start to see colors, color combinations look good. Mm -hmm. You start to see sort of gold or bronze and green mm -hmm. again and again and again mm -hmm. because it's it's quote unquote trending. And you're reminded, you're like, oh, that is actually a good tone. So no, you're not doing it because it's trendy, but you're being reminded that it's it's a nice color scheme because as a design-focused individual, you're looking for elements that play together well. You're sort of like a curator. Mm -hmm. that, that could be one explanation. 
Yeah. So, yeah. I, I just, I think that's what's going on. Yeah. yeah and there's yeah. nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with it. But, you know, now I'm starting to look into the, the design aspects because there are only certain nice classic designs on watches. You know, I'm starting to run out of the vintage ideas. So now my new design shift is to actually explore new lines. I'm not trying to create my own identity uh, with new okay. cases. Yeah, I mean that's the, yeah. So that is the next step. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean the classic ones. We I will continue, but you know certainly classics are classics. You can't read the. I mean they they are the ones. You know. So after doing it for for quite some time, so now we can say, oh, what other classics can we do? There are not many. No. Now you're moving into new new dimensions now. Uh, we were trying to move into uh, more angular lines. And uh, last year we had the Batman. We tried with uh, a Batman Quantum, which you will see yeah. very angular lines on, on the case. Yeah, no, we I reviewed one of those. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I'm trying to kind of like testing the waters with, with my design. Okay. So, you know, you will see a lot more uh, new case designs uh, coming up. People don't understand how hard watch design is. Like, it is easy to emulate something and make it look decent. It's extremely difficult to make something look good the first time around. Yeah. Like, to design something novel and have it make sense right away or even be accepted right away is really tough stuff. Especially on one type of watch. It's called diving watch. <laughs> I think not many people succeeded because of the stereotype that people have on diving watch. It has to look like a Rolex on Mariner, or it has to look like a Seiko diver's watch. So I don't think so. I've been very open-minded about diver's watches, but I agree. People are stubborn. Yeah. So actually, I'm taking, uh, taking this up. I'm, I'm doing a new design on a diver's watch. You know, I don't want to go out with a design and people say, oh, it's just a knockoff Rolex, it's just a knockoff Seiko Tuna and stuff. You know, you really want the classic diver's look without having really go back to the lines of, of those two watches. Somebody explained it well one time. They said it's new, but once you see it, it looks like it's always been there. Yes, yes. I mean, you, I mean, you can't have a square-shaped diver's watch or a tonneau-shaped diver's watch. So it I mean, you, you it'd can, be fun. Yeah, it's literally you can do it, but people won't let, uh, recognize it as a diver's watch. It will be a watch. <laughs> I don't know if you heard, but on one of these episodes, I was talking to the CEO of IWC. Yeah, and you know they have a lot of great dive watches, and yeah. they have like you know pilot watches, mm -hmm. um, and they have drivers' watches and things like that. And I said, you know, he's a marketing guy. I was like, okay, so. When you're designing these three watches, what's the difference between the demographic? Like, it, there's really not that much functionality difference between a pilot watch and a diver's watch. No. Like on a day-to-day -day basis, nothing. No. It, but there's a there's a mentality difference. Yeah, you don't go you know? diving with diving watches, right? Nowadays, you, yeah, you and you don't go flying with flying watches. Exactly. <laughs> you have dive computers. You have flying computers. You know, you don't need right. That. It's <laughs> mostly a style thing. Exactly. And I f I found his distinction <clears throat> between diving. Uh, watch people and pilot watch people will be very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. He said that dive watch uh, guys, 
uh, tend to be more like gearheads, mm-hmm. engineer types, right. uh, you know, like, like science, mm-hmm. definitely like adventure and things like that. But like, really like from the gear perspective. Mm-hmm. And then he said, pilot watch people. It's all about emotion, risk taking, glory. He used, that was a very sort of interesting concept. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the pilot watch one is more this sort of like charismatic leader that, that sees himself as, as an adventure and hero type. Whereas a dive dive watch person may like doing some of the same activities, but has a different perception of themselves and enjoys it for a different reason. So would you say that a diver's watch is more like an engineer and a pilot's watch will be more like an entrepreneur in this? Um, you know, I, I think entrepreneurs could go either way. Yeah. But I, yes, more like a people person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, that's a good way to use. <laughs> I never really thought about it, you know. Well, I mean, look, because the psychology is so weird from the outside. Like you and I sort of grew up as watch lovers, mm-hmm. just taking for granted. Well, of course, there's dive watches and drivers watches and pilot watches and all this weird stuff in between. Like we just took it for granted as being sort of part of the the categorization, it's part of the taxonomy of this industry. But from the outside, mm-hmm. if you don't even know about where these watches came from, and like these are all sport watches, and they all tell the time, right? You're like. Why would I choose one or the other? You know what I mean? Like, there's no context, and none of them seem to do anything particularly better than the others for 99.9% of what human beings actually do. Yeah. Who uses a slide brew on the on the, on the the watch anyway? Hopefully nobody anymore. <laughs> I mean, but everyone needs a ta- ta- tachymeter on, on the outside. Oh, sorry. my God. I, that's what I want to do. I want to do, like, a racing watch that just doesn't have that on there on purpose. Be like, it's a racing watch without that. <laughs> it will be a very, very difficult design. <laughs> Now, I want to talk a little bit about some of the collaborations you've done because you have done a lot of great collaborations that from a creative standpoint seem like a lot of fun. Some of them are licensed deals where mm-hmm. you just have access to intellectual property and you get to play around a little bit, which is cool. Others are with other creatives, little brands and things like that. I recently spoke uh, to Jeff Staple uh, of Staple Pigeon, who was a really cool guy. And you have the the Undone Time, Time Staple, yep. uh, the Yin Yang, which is a really cool watch, very creative. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe tell a few stories about what it's like to do these coll- creative collaborations with people. Uh, have you learned interesting things about people? Have you had some interesting conflicts, controversies? You know, what are some interesting anecdotes? I mean, we, we have a lot of controversies. <laughs> you know, the latest one will be our Japanese erotic watch. Uh, we recently launched it early in the month and we pushed, right. up, we pushed up ads and, and a lot of these ads got banned on on Facebook. <laughs> but it was actually, you know what? I'm a, yeah, I, I got to tell you a story about this watch because yeah. it's funny because you're right. So what you have, and I'm just sort of going to describe it. Um, it's called the Shunga. I don't know what that translates to. I know that hentai is the more common word for that's more modern, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but there's this there's this long history of erotic art in Japanese culture. I remember when I was in San Francisco, I went to a museum Mm -hmm. which had a temporary exhibition of just this art. So this is this very highfalutin, fancy um, exhibition, but it's all like 19th century Japanese erotic art, sometimes tentacle porn, like octopus tentacle porn from like 18 something, okay? So this is taken seriously as an art form Mm-hmm. It's for adults only, mm-hmm. but I'm actually a little surprised that there was any controversy because it's literally, this is, it is not erotica in the sort of contemporary sense. It is, it is art that's for adults and that's really the best way to describe it. It is. I mean, but you know, that is called censored content on, on Facebook, IG and, and uh, 
and different platforms. So, I mean, that's a little bit of controversy that we, we have. What else? What else? More, no. more stories. Sorry, I didn't mean to like interject that whole thing there. <laughs> anyway, no, no, that's one part of it. You know, we uh, another one we did was what we call the Stella dial. We're trying to recreate the, the popular uh, dial colors uh, for the Middle Eastern countries during the 60s right, and 70s. Right. Uh, we kind of put a, a Oman flag uh, or, the, or the Oman crest on the dial. And it was very popular. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. So what, was that, why was that controversial? Yeah, so people say you can't put flags, Oman flag on a dial, you know. But why? 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 You, know, you know, you will see the Union Jack, you will see the you know, American flags on a lot of products. But if you see a, a Union Jack on a Mini Cooper, would you say it's not correct? You know, kind of that. I understand. It's like it's, I don't have. A, you're just putting a flag. It's like all the T-shirts that have flags of countries on there. Are you not allowed exactly. to do that? Like, it, what does that even mean? If the same Oman logo was on the lighter, would you complain? It's not legit. You know, kind of. What, are you depriving the 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 country of Oman for money? Like, no, no. You're because, just bringing attention to that. No, no. Because I think it's because of the Rolex community. They price the Rolex watch with the Oman logo so much. And they think anyone else cannot do it. Okay, this is what I have to say about this. And I, yeah. I want to sort of defend the sort of notion of, of I don't want to say copying, but yeah. using property which is available. Yeah. Sometimes a watch is worth a lot of money because it genuinely is difficult to reproduce, like a very complicated watch or something using a very exotic material. Like you can't just copy it. Yeah. But sometimes people assign very high values to things that are very basic and their high value is totally arbitrary. I like inherent value. If something is expensive just because like it has a different color or something like that, that's arbitrary. You should be able to copy it. Yeah. You, you know, like people things that aren't copied aren't copied because they're hard. That means they're really exclusive. You should value them highly. Mm -hmm. If it's easy to copy, it's not worth that much. <laughs> it, it, you know, flags, you know, I mean, people print flags and everything, right? So, I mean, for, for, so, oh, so this is just internet, you know, flamers or whatever, just people getting angry because they can. Yeah, I mean, we, we were a little bit, initially a little bit worried that we actually bought uh, the IP from Oman just to, you know, <laughs> minimize the problems we, we might get on, on IG, <laughs> on social media. No, uh, but in fact, we had so many inquiries from the citizens of Oman wishing to buy this watch. Okay, there you go. Perfect. Yeah, I, I thought they would kind of be not so happy when we print that flag on it, but they wanted it. You know, isn't Oman one of two places in the world that still has a sultan? Yes, yes, yes. So I mean, and there's Brunei. Yeah, Oman and Brunei, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and I don't know why. And, I know and, that. and people wanted it. You know, I mean, that's not available. You know, I'm, I'm even thinking of maybe offering customization. On, on watch styles with different flags of the world, you know, so for different countries, they can, they can. Look, you, here's, okay, you and I are gear people, we like this, but we're not used to feedback. If anything, we're solo hobbyists. We like to do things that we can essentially do alone in a room. All of a sudden, our tastes are thrown out on social media and our, and our ideas. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with some of the feedback? Do you just ignore it? Because you have to look for legitimate feedback, mm -hmm. but you also need to ignore just contrary opinions what's your personal strategy when it comes to dealing with online feedback online feedback it's when people have comments do they really have legitimate comments you know a lot of people just 
speak out of their head. You know, they don't really think. They say, oh, it's illegal. Why is it illegal? You know, <laughs> you know, why is it illegal? But he just said, it's illegal. It cannot be done. You know, what's your basis on saying things like this? So usually we try not to respond too much because it will trigger actually more response, more negative response from different people. So we tend to kind of, you know, play it cool. You know, if you, we don't delete them, but we, 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 we let them cool down a little bit. I think that's the best way to handle social media comments. I mean, you can't, okay. you can't fight with them. I, I mean, uh, the worst I, thing is to fight over the internet. No, I agree. And you, you should always be uh, diplomatic and always focus on de-escalation. I, again, with my legal background, yeah. I feel like it's very strong, uh, strongly advised to what I, what I call correcting the record. For example, if someone says, you're doing something illegal, and you can say, we assure you we've looked into it and we're doing nothing illegal. Thank you. Like all you have to do is correct the record. Mm -hmm. We're not doing anything illegal. Mm -hmm. Don't even respond to them. Don't be like, how dare you? Just be like, mm -hmm. you're wrong. Sorry, but thank you for commenting. That's really all you need to do. Yeah. And uh, that's exactly even it doesn't even come from social media. I tell you, we have one of we have a legal letter from one of a quite famous watch brand. Uh, and in, <laughs> in, in Switzerland, and telling me that hmm. oh, your Fumé doll and uh, it's it's looking too close to our design. So based on Swiss laws, uh, you should not be selling these Fumé dolls. But you know, you and I pretty much know that most. Here's what I would say. Yeah. Because Swiss laws don't respect anyone else, we're not going to respect Swiss laws. <laughs> that, that's what I was thinking inside. But, you know, basically any brand or any big brands have done Fumé DAOs before. It's not a particular. There's one brand, which I don't want to mention their name here, but uh, uses a Fumé DAO as kind of their signature DAO. So that doesn't mean because you use them as your signature, it's your design. I mean, it's basically There's nothing stopping any other brand. Let's say another Swiss watch brand started being like, oh, we want to do like 80% of our productions for my dolls. There's nothing that they could do to stop them. It's literally just a creative decision. They're not copying their technique. They're yeah. making their own dials. They're not stealing them. Like you, you can't own a color gradient. Like that doesn't make any sense. Imagine in, imagine cars, yeah. some companies like, no, 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 you can't use that color. Like, what are you crazy? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, even Apple wouldn't claim a color like white, although there are thousands shades of, of white, you can't actually copyright or trademark or anything on a color. Look, Tiffany can claim that if you make a, a you know an aquamarine colored box that looks like ours, it can be confusingly similar to ours because we spent all this time and effort. So that's like a trade dress thing. But Tiffany, Tiffany can never say we own that color. In a narrow context, they're saying, hey, we put a lot of time and effort into this. We think people are just trying to ride on our goodwill mm -hmm. and, say, and, and tricking people to think it's Tiffany. That, I agree, according to international law, should not be allowed. But pretty much everything else, people are super sensitive about it. Like, oh, I'm doing a lot of blue, so you can't. Like, I understand creative people don't want people stepping over them. But we live in a main, a major consumer economy that if something is successful and can be replicated, our system of, of commerce basically encourages people to do so. It's just that simple. Yeah. And basically, I mean, the Swiss industry, it's, it's kind of funny. If another Swiss brand like Piaget or, or other brands does the female doubt, they would not have a problem with it. 
It's because we are not based in Switzerland. So they say no. It's because you're doing it at a cheaper price, and it's really hard for these companies to justify their prices. And this has been my biggest issue with the European watch brands: is they is they fail to demonstrate value outside of smoke and mirrors. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. But honestly, I was comparing my watch to them in a watch store. I think our doubt looks even better than this. Honestly, <laughs> look. I, what, but what, let's agree. They're selling to a different consumer, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's why. That's why what you're doing is not wrong because you're not depriving them of business. Someone uh, who can only spend a few hundred dollars on this mm-hmm. isn't going to be like, hmm, maybe I'd rather spend a bunch of thousands of dollars. It's it's the reverse, though. True. Someone who is a luxury watch person says. Well, I do need it to be an expensive watch. As mm-hmm. much as I like the style, I'm just not going to be the person that wears a $300 watch. Mm-hmm. And, and let's bring us back to, you know, like the 1970s, 60s and 70s, the Swiss watchmaking industry. What they were doing actually were just picking up parts from different suppliers. You know, even a watch bracelet used to only come, the big, the big brands only come to go to different watch suppliers, watch part suppliers to pick off different models. So they all right. kind of have similar cases, similar watch bracelets. All they did was slap on a brand. You know, look at the chronographs of the 60s and 70s. Most of them use value movements and, and they buy off the same, uh, uh, the same case manufacturers. So a lot of them were practically interchangeable. All the difference in them was the brand. So let's let's go back to this notion of making an original design. Mm-hmm. You come out with something original, you know at some point or another someone's going to copy it if it's good. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do to protect it so that some element of it is something only you can do? Because this is, of course, a consideration when you're coming up with something novel. Right. So our novelty is not in the design, honestly, Eric. Our novelty is in our business model how we serve our customers, how we build custom watches for our customers. So I don't think any of the big brands will be able to do that because inherently they have a different um, way of doing business. You know, they have the retail business, they have the wholesale business. There's no way they can actually offer custom watches directly to consumers. So, I mean, the smaller brands, they could copy us, but can you have a fully integrated uh, business model from design, manufacturing, and uh, marketing and delivery? Okay, so it's it's your it's your location in the world. Yeah, it's your it's your relationships with suppliers. It's your particular you know business structure that allows you to operate relatively leanly. Right. It's having someone like you that you could like if it, if this was just the suppliers, they would have no idea what to, what to do. You the, the artistic. Um, sort of nucleus of this is so crucial to making this work that, you know, they couldn't copy it unless they had another version of you. Exactly. I mean, if I leave undone, you know, hopefully never, <laughs> but, you know, they will lose, they will lose everything. You know, I mean, the, the whole design concept, they have, they will lose, you know, undone basically. So what is in this undone is it's, there is no single watch that represents an undone watch. And, and then it's kind of like a new watch kind of design philosophy. So it's not it's not about you know certain case design. Oh, this is a undone. 
not like Sumo. Yeah, it's not it's not a it's not one design. It's a concept. It's a platform. Right. It's a you know it's a, it's a, it's a set of values more than it is a specific look. Right. I mean, if you copy my Popeye or Snoopy, that I mean, would it affect me? You know, basically, we have limited editions. We probably have stopped production of these watches anyway. So, you know, financially, it won't affect me. You know, I'm always quite proud to say that when I have a watch that is launched, to me internally, that's already an old design. I'm working on something new anyway. So I'm not so worried. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Last question. We're, we're about out of time, and I think we're going to have to have some more conversations. Now, this has to do with the relationship you have with the watch enthusiast community. Mm -hmm. when, when the brand started, um, very early on, you started working with us um, as an advertiser. Thank you for that. Because I think you realized that it was very necessary for you to have that legitimacy and exposure to the watch enthusiast audience, even though you were selling something that they were not accustomed to buying. Mm -hmm. your, your price point, your designs, the way of buying and stuff like that was was totally not familiar to them, yet you knew that this was an important community to go to. Um, what is it about the watch enthusiast community did you appreciate was was uh, was so crucial when you started uh, and, and knowing that you needed to validate the brand in front of them? So basically, it's like buying a car, right? Not everyone is an enthusiast, but usually when you make a purchase decision, you will go to someone who knows about cars, right? So you ask them what brands you like, what, what's the recommendation? So the word of mouth from these enthusiasts is ultra important in a purchase decision, not only for watch collectors, but for general people as well. So I think that's where we want to see this community is because we want them to really recommend us uh, themselves. And that- And you weren't- you you, you weren't universally loved at first because you are very disruptive, especially in terms of pricing. Did it surprise you that I at least uh, was open-minded and understood the concept right away? I think because, you know, a block to watch is not like some other watch blocks, which works with a lot of the ultra high-end uh, watch brands. You know, when you have financial contracts with these ultra high-end high, high watch brands, you practically can't cannot write about undone or you can't even take us on as an advertiser because we that, have those contracts and we did it anyways yeah i mean but some some of the the watch blocks they only focus on money they only want to take in the big advertising contracts so that's that's very different you could, because if you are in that position it's it, it, they won't be interested in talking. But your your budgets, mm -hmm. and honestly, were not in many instances more than many of the brands. Yeah, I just recognized that this is a cool brand, mm -hmm. and despite there being potential pushback from the consumer, mm -hmm. eventually they realize this is cool. Mm -hmm. I had to be like that, you know, that museum curator that says, you know what, this is good art, even if it isn't something that people are demanding right now. Once they get to know it, I think they'll like it. Right. And I think there's a lot, there's a lack of that in the media space right now yeah. in general. Uh, I think you know. Because of the internet, I think they are a little bit more than before. You know, when they were, you know, physically printed magazines, you really have to have the advertisers. But I think now you're free to actually do more and, and review a lot more things. You know, you don't have to have only one publication per month. So you can basically cover a lot more stuff in the watch world. Have you, have you seen, obviously we started as being the real validator. Have you seen more open-mindedness in the media over the years? 
Yes, we have. I, I mean, you know, kind of like uh, some of the top watchdogs we, we were really trying hard to get into. But I think recently they relaxed a little bit. You know, they did one review with us. I, I think they are getting a little bit more open-minded. I think it's because of the drive from the watch enthusiasts. You can't just brag about, you know, multi-million dollar watches. I mean, you, you have to have more more choices uh, for the consumers. And they're, well, they're, they're, not- selling, they're selling something that you're actively against. Like, they know that you're a cool watch at a good price, but you make the, the things that they try to push look bad. Now, a blog to watch has never really been about any of that. Like, we don't really care about embarrassing a luxury brand. Mm-hmm. But they, they're afraid, because again, they're afraid of embarrassing themselves. Uh, they're afraid of your watches look, making so many other watches just look bad by comparison. And for me, I don't care about any of that because I'm a collector like you, mm-hmm. and having a cool watch out there at a good price mm-hmm. is, you know, is an end unto itself. Mm-hmm. I think you can't really stop that. I mean, with social media, there are so many ways to reach our customers nowadays. You know, you can't stop people from seeing good stuff. I mean, yeah. they they, yeah. they will find it, don't worry. <laughs> Michael, this has been such an interesting conversation. I want to do more watch designs with you. I hope you've seen some of the things I've done. We did a watch design together, but I'm just saying to you again, um, you actually, in a lot of ways, inspired me when I came to visit you at your office before that, I was not someone that ever wanted to design watches. And then I really think it was seeing your work that said that, that allowed me to realize, you know what, Ariel, you might be able to do it as well. I've done a few designs now. I've learned. You're right. It takes it's a lot of it's a lot of um, effort. But I appreciate the the amazing things that you're getting to do. And it's hard not to want to be a part of it because it's you know it's about creating those watches that have that emotional value and people see them they say i got to have it and that's such a fun thing to be able to bring that into people's lives you know yeah yeah that's exactly how 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 we operate i mean we just want to bring back fun into into watches if it's not fun why why wear it i mean you don't i agree you don't if need it's to not watch. fun why wear it yeah well, you don't need <laughs> that to tell time you know you want to wear it because it's fun Everyone, my guest has been Mr. Michael Young, and the website is undone.com. Michael, thank you so much. Thanks, Ariel. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe?